You know, the last couple years on Daylight Savings Time, that particular weekend, Andrew has preached. And we talked about this this week, and I thought to myself, oh my, this is going to be real interesting. And in fact, you know, of course, we have all our eye everything, pads, pros, phones, all that stuff. So, of course, I set my iPhone for the alarm at that, I, I don't know, ungodly hour of 5.30, and I kind of go, okay, it's going to... I wake up this morning, and... Everything worked. Everything was fine. I look across where Evie has kind of this decorative clock, and it said 4.30. I went, oh. So I have to admit my first thought entering the day wasn't as positive as I'd like it to be. And I would like to be able to say I repented immediately, uh, but I need to be a little bit more honest than that. But I got to tell you, it has been a great day so far. I don't know what you're going to get with the preaching, but... I'll tell you what, I've already been filled to hear Don and Merrill and what's going on in terms of the work they're doing, raising up and equipping leaders, absolutely phenomenal. And I got to make one other announcement as well. It is with joy that I let you know that the church planting pastor of Spruce Creek Church, Ray Cronorad, and his wife Sharon are with us this morning. And Ray and Sharon, it is absolutely phenomenal to see you guys. And so, and they are going strong, serving the Lord in a church just outside Charlotte. I hope you take encouragement by all of this, that the gospel is not bound. The word of God is not bound. Things are happening. It may look like, and sometimes it's easy to get discouraged and kind of go, is anything going on? But what a great day. Great to hear what the Lord is doing. So now, I, I hope the preaching is, you know okay at least. We'll go from there. Let me pray, and we'll ask the Lord to open our hearts as we approach his word this morning. Father, we do thank you for your Holy Spirit who takes the beauties and the glories and the work and the accomplishment of Jesus Christ and makes it known, applies it to our lives and our hearts. So it's with utter dependence that we ask that the Holy Spirit would show us the glory of Christ and apply Christ from this passage that we would look at this, and what does it teach us about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? So give us soft hearts, teachable hearts, as we open our hearts towards your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We're continuing our study of the life of Jesus through the gospel of Mark. We're on this morning, Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 30. Let's turn our hearts to the word of God. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. 
And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. This is God's word. You know, I always struggle every week with sermon titles. I titled this The Power of Fear, and I'm like, ah, it's okay, not great. I thought to myself, but I didn't know that we should put this on the marquee, I thought to myself, I should have titled it something like, The Birthday Party You Never Want to Be a Part of. <laughs> so, and uh, I don't know if I, I have other things that I was thinking, I won't share them, you know. <laughs> it's just one of those difficult things, it's kind of, you look at this, and it is one of the most sordid, tragic passages in the entire New Testament. We're looking at the life and ministry of Jesus, and we were way back in chapter 1. We were introduced to John the Baptist. We were introduced to him as the one, as the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And he said, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. This morning we're looking at the death of John the Baptist. Every part, every story in Mark's gospel, in some way, shape, goes back to what Mark said in chapter 1, verse 1. He said, here's what my gospel's all about. It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the story, the Son of God. So every narrative, every account, every interaction is in some way related to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel of the kingdom. It is teaching something about the nature and the reality of the kingdom of God. And in the passage we looked at last week, just connecting these two passages, kind of teaching us to look at the whole, in Mark 6, 1 through 13, Jesus taught concerning the cost of mission in his kingdom. He said, the nature and reality of the gospel of the kingdom is there's a cost. A student is not above his teacher, a slave not above his master. There was a cost to Jesus, and there is a cost to following Jesus practical application, have you counted the cost of following Jesus? And now, connecting this passage, this account, verses 14 to 30, with what preceded in verses 1 to 13, apparently, the mission activity of Jesus and the Twelve had reached Herod's ears. This Herod that we're talking about is a man by the name of Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, who died in 4 B.C. And his son, Herod Antipas, was one of several, call them governing princes, over the area there in the Palestine. And Herod had a true ambition and a lust for power. What he really wanted above all things was the Jews of his day to recognize him as their true king. And the cost of mission, and we need to understand the cost of mission is due to the reality that plays out 
in our visible seen world, the reality of a cosmic battle that is going on of unseen kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the powers of evil. That's why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 said, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In our life, when Don is teaching and equipping people and teaching, when we're teaching, when you're interacting, when you're going through your day-to-day life in your marriages, when you're raising your children, we're playing out in our day-to-day interactions a cosmic battle between the kingdom of God and the powers of evil, but we're doing so with this promise. John chapter 1, the light. If we're united to Jesus, we're in the light, for he's the true the light of the world, and thus we're the light. The light shines in the context where? Of darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. See, on this side, where we are of Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension into glory, the war is won. You need to know that before I dive into the particular, because we're going to get into some sort of details here. So I need you to know. It's almost like here's the introduction's good news, then we're going to hit some bad news, and we're going to end on some good news. Okay, now you need to stay with me through the bad news. But here's the first part of the good news, and I want you to know this. The war is won. This is part of the victory parade. But the victory parade can be quite difficult. It's not easy. There is a cost to mission. And the battle is played out. See, the war is won, but we're playing out battles. And the battle is played out on the playing field of our lives. Which means our lives count. Our lives matter. Our lives have significance. Either, though, for the powers of evil or the kingdom of God. Do you want your life to count? for the kingdom of God. In this particular passage, it's real simple. You have tragedy and you have triumph. And we're going to look at both those things. Those are the two vantage points that we're going to kind of explore this passage. We're going to look at the tragedy of sin, and we're going to look at triumph through suffering. First of all, the tragedy of sin. Okay? Very sordid passage, not a good birthday party. Certainly didn't end well for John the Baptist. But what does it have to do with us. How do we bring it home? How do we kind of bridge the chasm of a couple thousand years? What does it have to do with us? I want us to think for a second. Follow with me in terms of this track for a second. We all know the doctrine of total depravity, right? The doctrine that says that we are impacted by sin, by the fall, and by rebellion in every part of our being, leaving us unable unwilling to turn to God and live for his glory. That every part of us, the doctrine teaches we're not as sinful as we possibly could be, but that sin and the fall and rebellion from God has impacted and touched every aspect. So we no longer think right, we no longer feel right, our bodies don't work right, we're impacted by sin in us, sin outside of us, it affects us all over. But you've got the doctrine but I want you to think with me about the application of the doctrine. It's not enough to just know the doctrine. We need to know how does the doctrine apply? What are the implications of it in my life? And to that end, I included a quote for our reflection this morning. And you might want to even take a look at it in the front of your bulletin. From one of my favorite theologians, a man by the name of Richard Lovelace, who wrote a book called The Dynamics of Spiritual Life. And in it, he writes, the lifelong process of mortifying sin, and by that word mortifying, he means battling with it till you put it to death. In other words, 
The Spirit does the work. Because of depravity, we, are, we need to have grace, and the Spirit gives us that grace, but we still cooperate, and part of our is by the power and the resource of the Holy Spirit, working with means he's given us, like the Word and worship and sacraments and all of that. We are to do battle with sin to where we put it to death, but listen to what he says. First, he says it's a lifelong process, and it involves a gradual detection process. In other words, we're detectives. And here's what we're detectives of, a gradual detection process by which the particular forms in which sin expresses itself in our lives, our characteristic flesh, are uncovered to our view. There's depravity, but there's the particular forms depravity takes in yours and my life. Your depravity does not look like my depravity. Your characteristic rebellion against God does not look like my characteristic rebellion against God. We all have it, but it looks different. And we have to know ourselves. Not just know the doctrine, but know ourselves. Do you know the particular forms in your life that sin expresses of? Do you know yourself that well? See, look at the story. Look at the major players, the major characters, and look at the particular forms of the flesh in their story. First, you have Herod. His was a basic fear, lack of courage. We're going to get into that in just a minute. You see the power of fear grabbing hold of his life. But then you also have Herodias. Hers was a bitterness, a root bitterness. That's, that's why, what does Hebrews say? Let no bitter root, don't let that anger, that resentment fester because it can grab hold of you like it did her and eventually lead to murder, the tragedy of sin. First look at Herod, look at our text. Verse 14, when King Herod heard of it, what's the it? All the reports about Jesus and the 12 people, lepers being cleansed, demons being exercised, mother-in-laws being Healed. All sorts of different things going on. Teaching that's happening by this prophet, this itinerant prophet by the name of Jesus, going around. It says, when King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known, there were all sorts of reports. Some said, this is John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, "Mm, he's Elijah. Others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he hearkened back to something. He remembered something, and he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now, I don't think Herod had a working theory of resurrection, but he remembered, and if you jump down to verse 20 with me, we get a little bit of a glimpse of Herod's heart when it says, Herod feared John. He rightly knew that he was a holy and righteous man, and he kept him safe, for when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Look what's going on. Just follow with me here a little bit just with the story. Apparently, Herod liked to listen to John's preaching, liked to listen to John's teaching. It says he heard him gladly, yet even though he had this fascination and he liked to hear John teach, he refused to change. He refused to repent. See, why did John the Baptist kind of confront and call out Herod and Herodias? Was it just the immorality of an affair, or was something more going on? I think something more was going on. See, Herodias' union, remember what I said earlier. 
Herod aspired for the Jews of his day to recognize and give him the honor and give him, in a sense, the glory, to recognize that he was their true king. So he had a little bit of a political issue going on here. And what was going on between Herodias' union with Herod Antipas then was both adulterous, but it was also a slap in the face of the Mosaic law. Because in the Mosaic law, Leviticus, it says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. So Herod, desiring to be recognized as true king, yet basically spitting on the law of Moses, I would pretty much say that's not a good political strategy, wouldn't you? No wonder... John denounces him. No wonder John calls him out. And commentators point out that Herod's sin is he's more weak than cruel. He rightly considers John the Baptist a holy and righteous man. He's fascinated by John's teaching. And as a compromise measure to his wife, he says, well, I'll seize him and put him in prison. And that's fine. But while that's going on, you have Herodias, on the other hand, nursing a bitter grudge, biding her time until she can do something a little bit more cruel. She wants to take her revenge. And as a matter of fact, as you go through the text, basically, if you look at verses 19 through 21, you have verse 19, and it's followed chronologically by verse 21 with kind of a parenthesis of verse 20. See, verse 20 is a parenthesis that basically is Herod had this fear. He feared John. He saw that was going on. He listened to him with fascination. But apparently, so that made Herodias have to wait. And she waited and she waited and she waited until, ah, Herod's birthday is coming up. I'm a loving wife. I think I'll plan a party. And so verse 21, at the birthday party, she sends in her daughter, who the historian Josephus says is identified as a a young girl, probably a teenager, by the name of Salome, basically to go in and basically seduce Herod and his guests, the military commanders, the political leaders, all those that were gathered together. And in the midst of this, and I've got to be honest, I'm kind of glad the children have left for children's church. It's probably a good thing. Got to be honest, Herod's probably in a drunken stupor at this point, along with his drunken friends, He does something, and the text even tells us he was exceedingly sorry, has all this, so he probably regretted this. He makes a rash vow because here comes the daughter, Salome. She's dancing, and what does he say? He says, up to half my kingdom, whatever you promise. And you know what that harkens back for you Old Testament scholars? The time where Queen Esther went into King Ahasuerus in Esther chapter 5. And what did the king say? Up to half my kingdom I give to you. So, of course, when the daughter goes in to see her mother, and she says, Mom, what should I ask? Herodias is on that one immediately. She's quick. And with unhesitating response, she reveals her calculated heart, her intent. She's waiting for this. She says, the head of John the Baptist. Now, those are the facts of the story. What do we learn? about this. How do we apply this? And notice, you might be sitting there and going, oh, this is good. I'm I'm not Herod. I'm not Herodias. I don't have to worry. This is good. I like the sermon Jeff's pre. He did say it was a great day. 
I'm not having a birthday party and asking my daughter to dance anytime soon. Wait a second. There's a bit of Herod and Herodias in each one of us. Commentator by the name of David Garland writes the following comments on this, and he says, first looking at Herod. He said, Herod hears gladly, but does nothing. He reveres John as a prophet, but cannot muster enough courage to admit he made a rash oath and should not submit to his wife's wicked request. A fearless prophet is undone by a cowardly king who saved his face but lost his soul. Now think about this. What's the Herod in each one of us? The book of James says that whenever we know the right thing to do and fail to do it, it is sin. And the book of James says, don't only be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. Paul began and ended his magnum opus, the book of Romans, with the phrase, his mission, what he was shooting for amongst the Gentiles was the obedience that sprung from, that arose from, that came out of faith. We know our theology well enough that works, good deeds, a good life, never merits us salvation, can never earn us salvation. We're not preaching works here. But a faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone, if it is a true and living faith, it will be an active doing faith. That's the definition of faith. And so there's a little Herod, or maybe a lot of Herod, in each of us when we know what we should do. Herod knew what he should do. As a matter of fact, why did he go around? Oh, man, my wife's mad. This, uh, this is beyond just a night on the sofa. I'm in real trouble now. Okay, I'll weasel my way out of this. We'll just put him in prison. Then I'll go here and preach every day. Wouldn't you have loved to have been what John could preach with a congregation of one each day? That would have been kind of cool. You could really call out some sin. And Herod kept going, and yet refused to change, refused to repent. And what about Herodias? You don't think there's a little Herodias in each one of us? You mean you've never nursed a little resentment, a little anger? A little bitterness, a little, un- a little bit just slightly in our heart that says, I really don't like that person. Maybe they can pay a little bit. Do you recognize the Herod and Herodias in each one of us? And something else before I move on to the next point, do you recognize? Tim Keller makes what I think is a very profound point when he points out on this passage. He says, you do not have the power and the control over your heart that you think you have. If at any time in your life, if right now you're feeling, you're being convicted, your mind is being opened, that there's something you need to do, you know you should do it, but you're afraid to. You really ought to get to it, but you're not really getting it. He says, don't you dare think that the window of opportunity is going to be open forever. It is not. Sin is a tragedy. But does the tragedy of sin get the last word? Absolutely not. Because there is triumph. But the triumph comes strangely through suffering. 
One particular commentator writes, he says, if we desire or design to be kingdom agents in our world, on this further side of Jesus' actual resurrection, what should we be doing that the powers of the world would hear about it and scratch their heads in puzzlement? And are we prepared for the result? Mark makes it very clear there's a cost of mission. Cost to John the Baptist, cost to the 12, there'll be a cost to us, there is certainly a cost to Jesus. We talk about the cost of mission every week, don't we? Christians in many parts of today's world still face torture and death for their faith. That's why every week when Andrew leads us in the pastoral prayer, he rightly prays for global missions and the persecuted church. That's why, and Don's emphasized this, it's not just his ministry, we partner with Don and Merrill who are following hard after Christ, giving their lives to live and raise up leaders who will count the cost of mission and follow the implications of the fullness of the gospel. See, how does this text end? The text ends, verses 29 and 30, with the apostles putting John's body in a tomb, his death. But does that tragedy get the last word? Absolutely not. John the Baptist's life was one of triumph through suffering because of what John the Baptist's life was all about. And John the Baptist's life was not about John the Baptist. John the Baptist's life was about Jesus. One commentator writes, the powers of evil, you look at this text at face value and the powers of evil seem to have dealt a dismal defeat with the arrest and death of John. But John's beheading does not silence God's message. Even as we continue on in Mark, we're going to have Jesus walking on the water. We're going to have the feeding of the 5,000. The death of John the Baptist, his beheading, does not silence God's message. The kingdom cannot and will not be stopped by human opposition. Death to God's messengers will not defeat God's cause. It was the great church father Tertullian who said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, the tyrant dies and his rule ends. The martyr dies and his rule begins. Do you know why this is so? Do you know what John's life was all about? His entire life was a foreshadowing and a preparation a voice of one, even his death, crying in the wilderness, he must increase, but I must decrease. The words of John the Baptist as recorded for us in the third chapter of John. And it was John who said, Behold, the Lamb of God who, took, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Tim Keller again puts it very well when he says, John the Baptist is the one hero who always pointed beyond himself. John the Baptist says, you will never be fearless like me until you actually understand and look to the one to whom I point and what he did on the cross. And what did Jesus do on the cross? See, what happened to John was a tragedy. And we don't minimize tragedies. I'm never calling us to minimize. As a matter of fact, I think the more we have an eternal perspective, the more we understand the perspective of triumph through, 
through suffering, the more we can actually look at, enter in, love our neighbors well, come alongside without having to minimize tragedy and enter into it. When we recognize the eternal perspective that every tragedy we go through is temporary because Jesus took on the cross our ultimate the cost of our ultimate tragedy, the tragedy of sin. See, I shared earlier how each and every one of us is a Herod and a Herodias. Each and every one of us knows the right thing to do at least once in our life. And if you've only done, had that happen to you once, I want to I actually sit next to you and rub, up, rub shoulders against you a little bit. And each and every one of us has nursed anger and nursed bitterness and nursed unforgiveness and resentment before But do you know who paid for those sins? Do you know who paid for that? Do you know where that fell in God's economy? Because God, see, for while we were yet enemies, what does Romans 5, 8 say? For God demonstrated. You know what the word demonstrated means? It means made tangible, made clear. It's like God saying, you want to see love? You need love? Look here. He demonstrated his own love for us in this. That while we were still Herods and Herodias, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He took upon his own self, he took upon himself the tragedy of our sin. Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish preacher, years ago put it something like this. He says, on the cross, Jesus had no feeling that God loved him, no feeling that God supported him. God was his son before, now that son became all darkness. It was as if he had no God. This is the hell which Jesus suffered, and I feel like a little child casting a stone into some deep ravine in the mountainside and listening to hear it fall, but listening all in vain because it is absolutely too deep to fully comprehend and understand. John suffered and died a tragic death, tragedy, but pointless? Oh, no. Because look at what it pointed to. Look at what it for. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Triumph through and in the midst of suffering. See, Jesus lost everything. Lost everything and then was raised from the dead so that death no longer gets the final word. Tragedy is never again the final word. Word. He lost everything, and it's to the degree that we can look at him and have him increase. See, that's the goal. He must increase and increase and increase, which doesn't mean a denying of what you go through. When it says, and I must decrease, it doesn't mean somehow be fake and stoic and pretend that pain doesn't hurt us. Pain hurts and, impact, and it impacts us. Our decreasing is our not being gripped, paralyzed, debilitated by it in such a way that that's what defines our soul. It has Jesus increasing so that Jesus defines our soul. When we look at him and we go, there's the Lamb of God taking upon himself my rebellion, my anger, my bitterness, my ugliness, my rudeness my self-centeredness, my refusal. I can hear and hear and hear the word of God and ignore my neighbor. How much like Herod am I when the whole of the law of God is love God and love your neighbor and I can hear and hear and hear and ignore my neighbor. And yet, 
Look at the Lamb of God who out of love and mercy for us died for us loveless people. Died and took upon himself our lovelessness so that in reality we have nothing to fear. Behold, the Lamb of God, may he have taken away your sin. Let's pray. Lord, teach us the gospel. Help us to understand it more and more, and not just understand its content, but oh, how I long to see a renewal of the power of the gospel unleashed, certainly in my life, but also in our lives, in our church's lives, so that it can be unleashed in our community's life and unleashed all over the globe, unleashed in Africa and India and Asia and Latin America and all throughout the world, unleashed in North Carolina where Ray is ministering. Lord, I pray for the power of the gospel to be unleashed in and through us in Jesus' name. Amen.